two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to the third episode of our new podcast series, The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melly. I'm the Global Head of Research at Barclays, and I'm joined today by Christian Keller, our Head of Economics Research. Thanks for joining me, Christian. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. In this episode of The Flip Side, we will address the recent headlines in emerging markets and how much, if at all, they should worry investors in developed markets. This year, emerging market assets seem to have taken another turn for the worse. Emerging market currencies began depreciating rapidly against the U.S. dollar. In a couple of cases, like Argentina and Turkey, they've declined 40 to 50% since the beginning of the year. In dollar terms, emerging market stocks are down 11% year-to-date, which obviously compares poorly to the S&P 500, which is up over 9%. The recent correction in several emerging markets has investors asking two related questions. First, are we about to experience another emerging market crisis, meaning a sustained period of economic and market stress across a major part of the developing world? Second, could this be the catalyst to finally tip the extended economic expansion we've experienced here in the U.S. and really throughout the developed world into recession? Well, first, Jeff, I think this increased volatility may be here to stay. It seems to me emerging markets here enter a phase of heightened sensitivity to capital flows driven by global investors. Emerging markets really have gone through a series of transitions already. In the 1980s and 90s, emerging markets were volatile, very high-risk asset class, mostly reserved for specialists. That perception changed in the 2000s when China became integrated in the global economy. Larger emerging markets like Brazil and Russia experienced commodity-supported booms and the smaller Central European economies became members of the EU. And then, actually, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, emerging markets became even more popular. China's massive investment stimulus supported the global recovery, it drove commodity demand, and many emerging market economies held up actually comparatively well over their mainstream developed market counterparts as they were battered by banking crisis. So as a result, emerging market assets became even more popular and were seen as a must-have in a diversified global portfolio. Right. Around that time, many emerging markets received ratings upgrades. And as a result, they became included in the mainstream global bond and equity market indices. That means they become a common component in the asset allocation of large institutional investors. We've even seen increased participation from retail investors. That marks a real shift in the nature of the flows into emerging markets, as well as a corresponding shift in the nature of the exposure that investors have to these countries. Over the past several years, though, emerging markets' performance has become much more mixed. We've seen episodes of extreme exchange rate volatility, like this year, and I think investors are quicker to focus on the vulnerabilities of some of these countries. So a core question here is whether what started as isolated stress in certain emerging markets could spread throughout the emerging market universe and then also spill over to developed markets like the US and Europe. And I think to better understand this current emerging market turmoil, we probably need to look a little closer into the different cases, in particular those where we saw 
accelerating sell-offs over the summer, and that is Argentina and Turkey. Now, Argentina, to me, is a classic case of an emerging market government overly indebted in dollars. It was locked out of global capital markets for years after it defaulted in 2001. Then it became engaged in a protracted legal battle over the terms of the restructuring. And in end 2015, we suddenly saw a new government being elected with a fresh approach, settling the legal issues and promising sweeping economic reforms. That was a short period of euphoria around Argentina. Yes, both locally and among global investors. This allowed Argentina's government to come back to the capital market. They issued large amount of US dollar-denominated bonds in the coming two years. And these bonds were highly sought after by foreign investors. Then, in the event, the promised reforms were slow to materialize. Inflation remained high, growth disappointed, and the country's imports continued to outpace its export by far. Creditors eventually lost confidence, dollars stopped flowing, and Argentina's currency depreciated rapidly, over 50% against the dollar just since the beginning of the year. This, in turn, makes it now much more difficult to service and repay the billions of dollar debt that will start to fall due in coming years. Now, the situation in Turkey is similar in some respects. Across the Turkish economy, there has been a lot of borrowing in dollars and even in euros. The Turkish lira, which is the local currency, has been under pressure for several years. And like in Argentina, you enter a vicious cycle. The currency falls. It makes it harder to service the debt, which causes the currency to fall further, etc. In Turkey's case, the currency has declined 30% in just the last three months. So like in Argentina, it's been a very severe market reaction. And there's also a big difference between Turkey and Argentina. The debt in Turkey's case was raised by its banks, not by its government. The government actually has relatively little debt, and much of what it does have is denominated in Turkish lira. Now, of course, the implications of stress in the Turkish financial system can be very severe. We all know in the U.S. and in Europe that stress in the financial system can easily translate into real economic stress. Yes, that's the story of Turkey and Argentina, and they're clearly the worst hit. But we have to acknowledge, of course, that we're also seeing market stress in other emerging markets, Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia, India, Russia, really across the world. And on the surface, each of these stories is actually quite different. Take Brazil as an example. It has limited foreign financing needs, and it has actually quite substantial reserves of foreign currency. Instead here, investors are worried about soaring fiscal deficits and unsustainable debt dynamics. And these come against the backdrop of an upcoming presidential election in which none of the leading candidates seems willing to address this core problem, which probably would involve a very unpopular pension reform. In other words, Brazil's volatility is driven by concerns about a potential fiscal crisis and what that would do to Brazil's economy. Take Russia. There it's neither public or an external imbalance problem. The government has little debt, and the current oil prices keep the economy running well and in external surplus. But instead, the fear is about potential new U.S. sanctions. In South Africa, again, it's mainly about weak growth and the lack of economic reforms. So you see, on, on that level, the situation in emerging markets is actually quite heterogeneous with many idiosyncratic stories. Which is a nice lead-in to my perspective on our first question. 
I don't think this is an EM crisis. It's really just a series of coincidentally timed idiosyncratic events. There's no linkage between all these stories. First, there's clearly no regional linkage. We're talking about Turkey, Argentina, South Africa. These stresses are scattered across the globe, not focused in any one particular region. Second, the sources of all these problems varies widely. We talked about government debt, bank debt, political turmoil, sanctions. Sure, the timing's unfortunate. But these are risky investments. And sometimes the risks happen to crop up simultaneously. It doesn't mean that there's some kind of common factor out there that's causing all of these stresses to accelerate or spread through the rest of emerging markets. It is true that previous, previous cases, the emerging markets crisis tended to be focused on a specific region. Think of Asians' currency crisis in the late 90s, where pressures on the Thai bath spread to other countries, including Indonesia, Malaysia, Hong Kong, and ultimately even South Korea. Sure, or the Latin American debt crisis in the 80s, where the governments of Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico, obviously the three largest Latin American economies, had all borrowed substantial amounts from U.S. banks, and all that debt became unsustainable when growth in the region slowed. Yes, but I don't think we should be so focused on the regional connections being necessarily the characteristic of an emerging market crisis. In both of those episodes, it was not so much the geographic vicinity, but the common source of stress that created contagion between the countries, I think. In the Asian crisis, it was significant short-term private borrowing in dollars, basically akin to what U.S. banks did in the run-up to the global financial crisis, but worsened by the fact that it was in a foreign currency. In Latin America, it was sovereign borrowing. True, regional catalysts can worsen the crisis. For example, in Asia, uh, you know, the crisis was exacerbated by the unforeseen slowdown in Japan's, Japan's economy. But that is less essential than the underlying common financial source of stress. Okay, Christian, even if we downplay the regionally scattered nature of the EM stress, I still go back to not seeing a common narrative across all these situations we've discussed. No, Jeff. I know we spent some time to explain how all these countries have their specific different stories, but I do think there's a common narrative. It's emerging markets' increased reliance on foreign capital flows, and these originate mainly from investors in developed markets. So in the wake of the global financial crisis, interest rates in developed markets reach historic lows, and this had two effects. First, it made dollar borrowing cheap, and so we have examples now where some emerging markets have become too leveraged in dollars, regardless whether this is in the public or in the private sector. And in addition, the global search for yield also drove foreign investors increasingly to go into local emerging market assets. That is, investors bought bonds and equity in local currency. For example, investors from the US, Japan and Europe have bought bonds issued by the Brazilian government, but denominated in Brazilian currency, the real, not in US dollars. This is what investors call the carry trade. They hold assets that are high yielding, but denominated in another typically more risky currency. This works great, delivers great returns, so long as the underlying currencies are stable. But if and when the risky currency actually sells off, investors can lose all that additional yield very rapidly, even in days or weeks, in the face of currency depreciation. And now think about what is happening in the U.S. in particular. Interest rates are rising because the U.S. Federal Reserve is hiking rates in response to a strong domestic economy. 
This drives the dollar up versus other currencies. And this so-called strong dollar is particularly evident versus emerging market currencies. As you mentioned, it puts pressure on all the local investments that have been made in emerging markets. And we are now starting to see signs that these investments may be unwound. But Christian, how damaging is this really to emerging market countries? It's one thing when countries borrow in dollars. That can lead to sovereign defaults, like we've seen, for example, in Latin America. But it's harder to imagine countries defaulting on debt issued in their own currencies. That's the big difference between Brazil today and Brazil 20 years ago. It doesn't have anywhere near the same degree of dollar-denominated debt. Yeah, but just because we won't necessarily see a wave of sovereign defaults doesn't mean it isn't damaging the underlying economies. In fact, we may see a change in how emerging market crises unfold. No longer are they necessarily characterized by a sudden break of a currency peg with a subsequent sovereign debt default, which was pretty much the pattern of the 90s. But now we may have a story where foreign capital withdraws from an emerging market economy, the currency continues to weaken, dollar-indebted corporates have to reduce investments, or they even default, the country's central bank has to hike interest rates to defend their currency, and that in turn puts more pressure on local credit markets. The banking system faces increases in non-performing loans, and so on and so on. So it seems like you're redefining what we would expect from an EM crisis somewhat. It's no longer the big headline sovereign defaults or the internationally led bailouts. Instead, it's a period of protracted poor economic growth. And in concert with that, underperformance of all the financial assets in the country. And on your second question, I think there are real risks to develop economies from the current stress in emerging markets. We need to think of the size of emerging markets in aggregate. Emerging market economies share in the global economy, especially when including China, has grown significantly over the past two decades. Depending on your measurement, it's actually more than half of the global GDP. And importantly, the trade and investment linkage through production and supply chains between emerging and developed economies are much closer now than they, are in the, they were in the 90s. Growth in emerging markets contributed to the recovery in developed markets after the financial crisis. So then if there's now major stress in emerging markets, why should that not be disrupted for developed markets? Okay, I have two uh, issues with that. First, your estimate of the size of emerging markets included China. Without China, actually, EM is only half as big as, uh, as the rest of the developed world. So unless this stress spreads to China, the aggregate effects are necessarily that much smaller. Now, China may have its own issues, like a burgeoning trade war, which was the subject of our first episode of The Flip Side. But it has a closed capital account. That means there's no real outside investment in that economy. And correspondingly, no re real risk that developed market investors withdraw funds and create the same kinds of pressure. Further, I actually have a hard time seeing even a protracted period of poor growth in emerging markets having any sort of real effect on the U.S. First, the emerging market countries affected so far represent a very small fraction of global GDP. And so the stress has to spread. Second, the U.S. is in the midst of a historic expansion. At this point, actually, it's the longest expansion on record, further buoyed by fiscal stimulus in the form of our recent tax reform. We still have very favorable financial conditions. And finally, and probably most importantly, the U.S. is actually benefiting from the same capital flows 
that are hurting emerging markets. These capital flows are symmetric. The money gets withdrawn from emerging markets. It has to go someplace. And where it's coming is into the U.S. because interest rates are rising and the investment opportunities in the U.S. look very promising. I do take your point about the U.S., Jeff, but there are other developed markets out there which may be more exposed to emerging market stress. Take Europe and Japan, for example. They're much more open economies with much more reliance on their export sectors and with also a higher dependency of their stock market listed companies on earnings from emerging markets. At the same time, their domestic growth is actually much less robust than in the US, meaning they have less capacity to withstand shocks. And with regards to your point about capital flows, the monetary policy in Europe and Japan is far behind the US. Both still have negative policy interest rates and very low bond yields. This leaves their investors still struggling to find good returns. So the spillover from an emerging market crisis to developed market economies may be actually larger than you may guess from just looking at the US. And I think it's fair to say that in a globally connected world, ultimately no single economy is fully isolated. And at some point, the US would feel it too. Well, this is a debate that's likely to continue for weeks and months to come. Thanks for joining this episode of The Flipside. Clients can read our latest take on the turmoil in emerging markets and the implications for developed markets in our latest global outlook entitled The U.S. and Then the Rest. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flipside. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/ib.